Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode 14. I am Sarah and I am your host. And for the tens of people following my journey in recent weeks, I am happy to report that I am gastro-free. But weirdly now unable to stomach the idea of coffee. So apparently at some point along the line, I've traded my soul in exchange for my health. I can't remember doing that, but then again, I can't remember buying all this fresh fruit either. So perhaps it's some kind of weirdly healthy psychosis. This week, I'm giving not one, not two, but three super fun happy shout outs. Yes, it's a veritable love in. Starting with Miss Sherelle Nadine of Emerson Legal and Accounting at Laidley and Gatton for being a super awesome law grad and clerk who has been listening to our show just because she loves law. Next up is Bianca Stringer, barrister at the Queensland Bar, a sister from another mister who also spelled boobs on her calculator as a child. Yes. And lastly but not leastly is the Supreme Court Library at Brisbane, who have not only generously hosted several many of my interviews in their schmick mid-century modern premises, but who also have paintings everywhere with eyes that follow you around the room. If you don't believe me, take a trip up to the level 12 of the Supreme Court building and tell me I'm wrong. Okay, enough of that mutual appreciation club. What's in the briefcase this week? It's a riddle. What do Cricket, Pizza and Kim Kardashian have in common? It's time to find out as we delve into two litigation cases with the one and only Pavarotti of Law, Barrister Matthew Hickey, OAM. Order of Australia Medal. Yeah. What'd you get that for? Uh, I'm not really sure if I'm perfectly honest. <laughs> Uh, it, it's it's said to be for music and the law services to both, but um, uh, look, it's it was a, a source of great pride, but also deep humility and, and and slight embarrassment and confusion. It, it was in fact a bit of confusion. One wag said to me, um, "You know, you you didn't have to say yes if you didn't feel like you deserved it," which I thought was um, quite sort of amusing. You made a good point, I suppose, but... Um, um, yeah, you can be confused but still accept it. It was a very special day for my family who've been very important supporters of mine over the years and also for my parents, of course. Yes. Yeah, it was lovely. So, Matt. Yes. What are we talking about today? Right, so I want to talk about two cases today. They both concern matters of practice and procedure. Mm-hmm. They're both very recent decisions. Mm-hmm. Both of them are single judge decisions of the federal court. Both of them concern parties that are household names. Both of them contain topics that are favourites of mine, in one case cricket, in the other case pizza. Oh, yeah, I'm with you there. Both contain helpful practical assistance on matters that are bugbears of mine. Okay. So that's the the game plan. The first case deals with the proper approach to pleading a defence to a particular kind of statement of claim. I told you it wasn't glamorous. Well, yeah, I'm waiting for the... (laughs) And the, the, exciting bit, but the, okay. second, the second case deals with the partial redaction of documents adduced in evidence and the consequences of getting it wrong. Oh, 
So that's the game plan. Okay. First case, Seven Network Operations Limited in Cricket Australia. Yes. I won't give you the citation because, Sarah, you'll put that in the show notes. I surely will. I, I don't know whether you do or you don't, but I always just I wanted do. to say that. Yes. So it'll be, it'll be in the show notes. <laughs> it's in the show notes. So this case is a decision of Justice O'Brien in the Federal Court. It arises in a proceeding between the Seven Network, Channel 7, and Cricket Australia about the broadcast rights agreement, which those two parties entered in 2019. Mm-hmm. So Cricket Australia says to Seven, hey, you can broadcast some of the cricket. Okay. Um, for those that are particularly interested, um, the rights they were permitted to broadcast were all men's test matches, all women's international matches, and a number of big bash league matches. Now, pause here to say, cricket aficionados call big bash league the BBL, Yes. Um, BBL is known by Kim Kardashian fans as something else entirely, and I'm <laughs> conscious of that. Uh, I will, because it amuses me, refer to the BBL as the BBL for the rest of this discussion. All right. But know that I do it with a degree of self-awareness. And you do it in the context of cricket, if not Kim Kardashian. I suspect the cricket aficionados won't know what BBL means otherwise. Maybe now they're rushing off to Google to find out. <laughs> uh, but anyway, there we are. We may break the internet. Possible. Look, it's good to have goals. <laughs> So this decision arises at the end of a case management hearing within that proceeding. And the court was concerned with two things in this case. One was discovery. I'm not going to talk about that. But the other is this, and this is the bit that I'm interested in talking about. Whether it was permissible for Cricket Australia, remember they're the defendants, to say in their defence that a particular aspect of Channel 7's statement of claim was, quote, vague and embarrassing. Embarrassing. Yeah, so embarrassing sort of is not in the you know sense that you know your skirt blew up or whatever. It's this old sort of fashioned legal term that means it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Right. right. Okay. So you see that that language come up um, quite a lot. Now I need to tell you some other things to sort of make it interesting in order that the the point really makes sense. The first thing is this: that in the rights agreement between Cricket Australia and Seven, Cricket Australia was obliged to quote, use all reasonable endeavours to organise and conduct seven matches. Now, the seven matches are those that Channel 7 was authorised to broadcast. So it was obliged to use all its reasonable endeavours to organise and conduct those matches across a season to a quality and standard which is at least equal to the highest quality and standard in the world for those kinds of matches, but in any event, to a quality and standard for the season which is overall no less than the prior year's season. So there's two aspects to this, right? The Cricket Australia needs to make sure that it is as good as the matches of that kind that are happening elsewhere, mm-hmm. or as good as happened last season. But what's interesting about this is that the relevant seasons that we're concerned with here were 2019-20 mm-hmm. through to 21-22. Right. So we've got COVID thrown up through here, um. Um, and a variety of other things. So that's the, the obligation that we're concerned with. In the preceding Channel 7 says to Cricket Australia, you've breached the agreement in these ways. In the 19 to 22 seasons, you've scheduled other international cricket matches at times that competed with the BBL matches. Right. So that's the first thing they say you did wrong. Imposed certain rules on the BBL competition, including salary cap, overseas player restrictions, among other things, and scheduled BBL matches in a manner that prevented certain well-known players from being able to play at all so that lesser-known players had to fill the gaps. Right. So in short, Um, Channel 7 thinks it's going to be broadcasting particular matches at particular times with particular players. But unfortunately, Cricket Australia, it said, does some things which mean we get different times, different players. That's not what Channel 7 thought it was going to broadcast. Right, B-team. Exactly. Mm. And so in addition to the breach of contract argument, there's this misleading and deceptive conduct argument. Um, 7 says Cricket Australia told them some things which were ultimately misleading, deceptive uh, or misrepresentations. Don't really need to tell you about that. Mm. 
Now, Justice O'Brien, who hears this particular case, says that one sees increasingly these kinds of pleas come up where people say, well, it's vague and embarrassing or insufficiently particularised and so we can't respond to it. Mm. And I say I've always thought that's contrary to the obligations of a pleader, both in terms of the rules and also in terms of what the law generally expects pleadings do. And as it turns out, Justice O'Brien thinks the same thing. He said that that approach to pleading, that is to say it's vague and embarrassing, we can't respond to it. And I pause there to say, in case um, people don't understand this bit, the pleadings rules both in the federal court and the uniform civil procedure rules here in Queensland, and there are probably analogues in other states, require you to either admit allegations that are made against you or to deny them or to not admit them, if in certain cases the rules permit that. And in some places, you've got to give an explanation for Mm. why you either deny or don't admit. So pleading that an allegation is vague and embarrassing and can't be responded to is not doing one of those things. It's doing something entirely different. It's It's a bit of a cop-out. Exactly. It's evasive. Mm. It's making a complaint about the allegation in the statement of claim. It's not actually responding to it. And to my mind, I've always thought that doesn't seem to me to be a, a proper approach. Justice O'Brien, as it turns out, entirely agrees. And um, His Honour said that that approach to pleading is, quote, a cancerous growth, close quote, and that it, quote, should be excised, close quote, which I thought was beautiful language. That is beautiful. Uh, And in the decision, for those of you that are playing at home, His Honour referred to rules 16.02 and 16.07 of the federal court rules. Those are the ones which provide within the rules what the expectations of pleadings are. And His Honour said that that approach to pleading is inconsistent with the requirements of those rules and don't serve the purpose of pleadings. That is, they don't define the issues in the proceeding Mm. or ensure that the proceeding is conducted both fairly and efficiently. His Honour said, similarly to what you've just observed a minute ago, that this approach is evasive Mm. and it does nothing more than to assert that the statement of claim is deficient while refusing to plead in response because of that deficiency. So what's the solution? Aha, I'm glad you asked. So if the statement of claim is vague and embarrassing or otherwise materially deficient, Mm. His Honour points out that there are means under the rules to address those problems. So um, one solution, of course, is to make an application to the court seeking to strike the pleading out. Another solution is to seek particulars from the other side about their statement of claim and that often those approaches will resolve the problem. Having said that, in the decision, His Honour was careful to say, well, look, I don't want to encourage people to make pointless applications. We don't want a proliferation of um, pleadings fights coming to the court. And that's important because those who practice in the federal court will know the federal court in particular has increasingly um, signalled its disinterest in hearing sort of pointless pleading squabbles and is really encouraging practitioners to try to sort these things out um, among themselves. And what was interesting is that um, His Honour recognised that this particular kind of approach to pleading a defence might well be because people have become conscious of the fact that the court doesn't want to deal with these sorts of applications and so what else are you to do? Um, His Honour said, well, look, if that's the reason people are doing this, then that's misguided and that what parties should do, according to His Honour, is, quote, to have the matter remedied either by seeking an amendment to the pleading or by seeking particulars, and that if the complaint about the allegation does not rise to that level, the respondent should plead properly to the allegation in accordance with the rules of pleading. So in short, if you've got a legitimate complaint, bring it. And if you don't, then respond properly to the pleading in the way the rules require you to do. So that's the long and the short of this case, which is to say, although you might have seen defences that say words to that effect, we can't respond because it's insufficiently particularised, it's vague and embarrassing, things of that nature, don't plead that way. 
No. If you've got a legitimate complaint to make about somebody else's pleading, then make it, either to them or the court. If they won't fix it, make your application. But in any event, if you're going to respond to the pleading by putting on a pleading of your own, you've got to comply with the rules. And so what happened in this case is that His Honour ordered Cricket Australia to amend its pleading, to remove those paragraphs that say it's vague and embarrassing, and then ultimately to file the defence which actually complies with the rules. That's the first case. I like that. Cricket. Excellent. Um, now that cricket's out of the way, let's get to the good stuff. And so, I'm, I'm kind of in, in the mood for KFC. Regrettably, I can't help you with that. It's another sort of takeaway. It it's, is. <laughs> it's, it's pizza here. Okay, all right. This is also a single judge decision of the federal court. Gale and Domino's Pizza Enterprises Limited Number 3. Right. Now, I will say this. Um, this is an ongoing case. It's a um, representative action, so a class action, mm-hmm. brought by Mr Gale. Mr Gale is a fellow who worked for one of the Domino's franchises, and he represents a class of people who also worked for Domino's franchises all around the country. Mm. Long story short, Mr Gale says um, he has been underpaid. He says that because Domino's represented to him and people like him that they were subject to a particular agreement that had been struck between Domino's and others, when in fact, Mr Gale says the true position is they were properly subject to an industrial award and should have been paid more. Now, pause to say this, this trial is ongoing, Uh, It's before the court um, in another state. Uh, And if you're really interested, you can watch it being live-streamed on YouTube, I noticed the other day, um, which is sort of quite interesting if you're into that sort of thing. As as I I, I happen to be. uh, (laughs) But I understand that might not necessarily be other people's idea of fun. So that's the background. In this particular instance, what happened was some documents had been disclosed by Domino's to Mr Gale. There are two sets of documents. I'm not particularly interested in the second set, but I'm interested in the first set. The first set was a chain of emails. The first of the emails, so there's an email and then a response to the email. The first email is an email from the general counsel of Domino's to their external legal advisor. The second email in the chain is the response from the external legal advisor to the GC. And they disclosed this chain of email in this way. They redacted portions of the first email, that is from GC to external lawyer, and they redacted the entirety of the external lawyer's advice to the GC. They wished to rely upon the part of the first email that wasn't redacted, but they wished to maintain or assert an entitlement to keep confidential the rest which had been redacted because they said it was subject to legal professional privilege. That in itself is something that, again, happens relatively regularly. You know, we see documents come to court where somebody has taken a decision somewhere along the litigation line of deciding there are things in this particular document that are subject to privilege, so we'll just redact them. What I apprehend is that often no real thought is given to whether, in fact, merely redacting in that way will protect the confidentiality of the bit that's been redacted, for the reasons I'm about to explain. So in this case, there's this bit in the first email which is redacted. The point that's put against Domino's by Mr Gale is to say, look, we can't properly understand the meaning of the language in the unredacted bit in the first email without being able to see the entirety of the rest of the email. And it might be that there is something in the rest of the email which gives a slightly different gloss to the bit of the email we've actually seen, which would enable us then to put a case against Domino's, which would be unhelpful to Domino's. And so the point about legal professional privilege and the question of waiver is whether there's some act on the part of the person who seeks to assert the privilege, so Domino's here, Mm. which is inconsistent with the maintenance of legal professional privilege. 
And so the traditional way one thinks about that is if there is some act which discloses the gist or the substance of the advice that they've been given. So, for instance, if I take advice and I somehow reveal to you the, the nature of the advice that I've been given and what it says, then that's an act inconsistent with my then after that saying, oh, but I, I want to keep secret the documents themselves, right? Yes, because yes. I've acted inconsistently yes. with keeping it confidential. But there's this other kind of inconsistent act, which is not in that first category, which is what happened in this case, which is where Domino's gives a bit of the information and in order for the other party to understand the bit that they've been given, they really need to be able to see the entirety of it. Yes. And so what Justice Colvin in this case decided was, well, look, it's really it's unfair to, to Mr Gale to not be in a position where he can properly understand the document that he's been given. Mm and to be able to run this alternative case against Domino's, which might actually be adverse to Domino's. And so in that way, they've acted inconsistently and the document should be unredacted in its entirety uh, and given over. And so what's interesting about this case, I mean, it's not sort of particularly interesting from a legal perspective. I mean, all of the principles are well settled in this area and the leading authority that's referred to is the High Court in Mann and Carnell, which talks about that inconsistent conduct that I've talked about. But I think the the takeaway from this, if you'll pardon the pun... (laughs) is uh, that this is something that happens a lot. You know, I see, and I'm sure most barristers would see, documents which come ready to be relied upon in court where there's been some redaction and somebody has simply made the determination, well, this bit's legal professional privilege, so we just blacken over that bit, without necessarily thinking about whether, but what would be the consequence if, in order to understand the bit that's not redacted, we have to give over the whole lot of that does the effect of that mean that whatever benefit we might get by being able to rely upon the unredacted bit is displaced by the risk of the whole lot coming out? But it's an interesting sort of strategic thing to have to think about for those who are turning their minds to whether they're going to give over things, parts of which are privileged and parts of which are not. You need to think about this. And the other thing that's sort of interesting procedurally about this is that Justice Colvin is not the trial judge. So this matter was carved out to his honour to hear and determine so his honour could see the entirety of that chain of correspondence Mm. and having regard to the entirety of it make a determination about whether the entirety of it should be disclosed to Kale. So I don't think that's a particularly sort of earth-shattering piece of jurisprudence but it's a point that I think could take people by surprise if if you aren't alive to it and and as I say who doesn't like pizza? And who doesn't like discovery? (laughs) Well that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Kral and this is The Briefcase.